0: i either not sure what it means or how I'm going to preach it, but this one is deep. This is challenging. This is going to be a hard passage, but the next text is the next text. But then there are passages that I look at and say, oh, this is good stuff right here. I can't wait. I can't wait to get this chapter because I just know the church is going to be on their feet shouting when we get to this passage right here. This is one of those. I love this passage. It begins in John 10 and verse 22. where It says it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. And I'll just mention this because I, I took it out of my, out of my sermon. But that's the only place that I can find where John mentions the weather or the seasons. It was winter. It was winter. And I wanted to preach this morning, and, but I'm, I'm going to move beyond it. But I don't think he's just talking about the weather. Verse 23. And Jesus walked in the pimp temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believed not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. The first half of this chapter, as we have seen in the last several weeks, is taken up with the parable of the Good Shepherd. It is the only parable in the Gospel of John. That parable has been given to a Jewish audience in Jerusalem, probably somewhere in the vicinity of the temple. And it's been given as a response to the religious leaders of Israel casting out the man who had been born blind because of his growing faith in Christ. We have seen that they were the thieves and the robbers. They are the false shepherds. They are the hireling that Jesus talks about in the first part of the chapter. He is the good shepherd. He is the door, as we have seen. And when Jesus gave that parable, there is a reaction to that parable that is found in verse 19. There was a division, therefore, among, again, among the Jews for these things. Many of them said, He hath a devil and is mad, and why hear ye him? Others said, These are not the words of him that hath A devil, can a devil open the eyes of the blind? So as we've seen several times, there is a mixed reaction to the words of Christ. Some thought that he's just a madman. Others are more ejected than they're thinking. thinking, How can a madman, a man who is demon-possessed, how can he do the works that we have seen him do? So there is a division among the people over Christ as there has always been. And you will notice specifically at the end of verse 21, that it is tied into opening the eyes of the blind. So that ties us in to the miracle in chapter 9 that we have seen. And then we come to verse 22. And it's a separate division. It is the same chapter, but it's a different time. It's a different scene. It's a different conversation. In fact, there are about two to three months that transpire between verse 21 And verse 22, Jesus has left Jerusalem for a couple of months. And when he comes back, the same people find him and pretty much try to pick up the conversation where it had left off before. You'll notice that in verse 26 and 27, he mentions the sheep again. Now again, it's not the same conversation, but it's similar to what had been going on before. Now in verse number 21, it mentions that it is at the Feast of the Dedication. The Feast of the Dedication. And if you remember in our study, we've already seen that John organizes his material around the Feast of Israel. On the Jewish calendar, there were seven holidays or seven holy days that were given to them by Moses in the book of Leviticus. And these seven feasts, they commemorate some special event in their history. The first one in the spring, of course, would be Passover. That is to remember their deliverance out of Egypt and the Passover lamb that was slain. Then you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which actually was a seven-day feast that began the day after Passover. So those are tied together. Then you have the Feast of Firstfruits, and that is a Thanksgiving feast that celebrates the first gathering of the harvest. And then... Not long after that, in fact, 50 days after that, they would have what is called Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, exactly 50 days later, and that celebrates the end of the harvest. Now, those four feasts take place in the spring. Then, later on in the fall, there are three more. There is the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Trumpets, and that marks the end of the agricultural year and the beginning of the fall harvest. Then you have the Day of Atonement. That is one day where the priest makes a sacrifice, goes into the Holy of Holies, makes atonement for for the nation for the year. Uh, That's called Yom Kippur, by the way, today. And then the last feast is the Feast of Tabernacles. That's where they celebrate God bringing them through the wilderness wanderings and they dwell in tabernacles or booths for, for a week. Now, during the Lord's ministry, Jesus is coming and going back and forth from Jerusalem. And John always mentions that it is a feast that Jesus came to Jerusalem. And it gives us markers to keep up with the chronology. But I also believe that John mentions these feasts because Jesus is the spiritual fulfillment of these feasts. And there's a whole message in all of that. But for just a minute, go back to John chapter 2. John chapter 2 and look if you would in verse number 23. John 2 and verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, there's the first feast. Look at John chapter 5. John chapter 5 and verse number 1. After this there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Look at John chapter 6 and verse 4. And the Passover A feast of the Jews was nigh. By the way, remember that the feast of unleavened bread takes place right after Passover in the seven days. So John 6, 4 mentions the Passover because the passage is Jesus as the fulfillment of that feast. He's getting ready to feed 5,000 with just five loaves and two fishes. Move on, John 7 and verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacle was at hand John 10, the passage we're in, verse 22, the feast of dedication. And then John 11 and verse 55, and the Jews' Passover was nigh. And so John arranges his material around those feasts. Now, watch this. By the time that you get to the gospel era, the Jews are keeping all seven of those feasts very religiously. They are keeping those seven feasts. They had added traditions and customs and things to that, and they made it a very festive time, a very commemorative time, a very celebratory time, and it was so supposed to be. But by the time that you get to the Gospels, they had also added two more to the Jewish calendar. The first one that they've added to the calendar is called the Feast of Purim. The Feast of Purim. We remember when the Jews are delivered from the hatred of Haman in the book of Esther. Well, that was such a great deliverance that they added a feast. we got to have a holiday to celebrate that. So they added the Feast of Purim. If you're interested, the feast in John 5, it doesn't tell you what feast it is. Personally, I believe it is the Feast of Purim. Then there is a second feast they've added in our text in John 10 and verse 22. It is the Feast of Dedication. Now, if if you are thinking, I don't remember reading that feast in the Bible, it would be because you have it. This is the only time in your Bible that the Feast of the Dedication is mentioned. They have added it to the calendar. It's the last feast on the Jewish calendar, and this is the only time that it is mentioned. Can I take just a minute and tell you how The Feast of Dedication came about. Would that be okay? It's a little bit history, but I I love history. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are 400 years called the Inner Testament period. It is sometimes called the silent years because during that 400 years, there is no preacher, no prophet, no vision, no word from God. God is silent during that time. And during those 400 years, there's a lot of tragedy. There's a lot of darkness in the history of Israel. And particularly about 170 to 160 years before Christ came. Because in about 170 B.C., there was a very powerful ruler in Syria. And his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. If you've studied history, you are familiar with that name. He actually added Epiphanes to his name himself. Because Epiphanes means the supreme one. So that tells you he is a narcissistic egomaniac. And Antiochus Epiphanes goes down in history as one of the most evil men who has ever lived. He had a satanic hatred for the Jewish people. He is no doubt was no doubt a demon-possessed man. He was cruel. He was diabolical. And he directed his hatred toward the Jews. In fact, we study Antiochus as a forerunner, or at least a type, of the Antichrist that is to come. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes was a Greek. He wanted all of the world to be Hellenized or to be like Greeks. We're all going to speak the Greek language, Greek cultures, Greek practices, Greek gods. And everybody went along with it except one group of people, and that was the Jews. We can't go with your practices and your customs and your gods because we have our Bible, we have the Old Testament, we have our God. And so Antiochus Epiphanes used that as an excuse to begin to persecute the Jews. In 170 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes marched into Jerusalem, slaughtered thousands of Jews. Then he went into the temple and he committed what's been called the abomination of desolation. He went into their temple and he took a pig and he slaughtered a pig, sacrificed a pig on their altar. He set up a statue of Zeus in their their temple and ordered, ordered all of the priests to sacrifice and to worship that image. He passed a law banning all Jewish scripture. If they could find a copy of the Jewish Bible, then they would burn it. He passed a law that forbid Jews to celebrate the Sabbath, to circumcise their sons. Anything that was Jewish, he outlawed it. Well, that went on for several years, and you can imagine the the insult that it was to the Jewish people. But a few years later, there was a man named Judas Maccabeus that rose up to lead a revolt against Antiochus. We have had enough. And, and, And the nation gathered around him, they, they revolted against Antiochus, and they won. They retook Jerusalem. Great, great victory. Well, you got to know a victory that great. we got to have a holiday. We're we going to celebrate this every year. And So they did. They, they set out an eight-day period, late November, early December, that we're going to celebrate this. It is called the Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah. That's what it's called. And it just so happens, I didn't plan that, but it just so happens that right now is Hanukkah, December the 8th through the 15th. so we are right in the middle of that if you were Jew. So that's the history to feast dedication. And this sets us in Jerusalem in the winter at the time of that feast. Now here's why this passage is important to me, all right? This is the last public appearance of Christ before the cross, We are only in chapter 10 of John's Gospel, but we're only about three months away from the crucifixion. At the end of this chapter, Jesus is going to escape out of Jerusalem again. He's going to be gone for two or three months. And in chapter 12, he's going to come back in to Bethany, which is just a few miles from Jerusalem. And at that point, we're only a week away from the crucifixion. This is his final public appearance. And to be honest with you, I don't know why Jesus came to Jerusalem at this time. He knows that there's only hostility against him. He knows that his time is near, but it is not now. And when he comes back to Jerusalem, it is the exact same response as it was the time before him. Now, here's what happens. The same people that he's been talking to came up to him three months later. And here's what they ask him. They said, aren't thou the Christ? Watch this. Tell us plainly. Well, what do you think he's been doing? If he hasn't told you plainly by now, you are not listening. It is a disingenuous question because if he's done anything, he has told them plainly. I'm not going to go back through all of the verses. We we have been through it. But over and over and over, he has told them, I am the Son of God. I and the Father are one. And they're not asking because they are confused and want to know. They're asking because they are unbelieving and they want to accuse. And Jesus tells them, he says, I've told you you didn't believe me. I've shown you my works, you didn't believe that. And so if I, t- you're just not believing. You, you haven't believed what you have heard and you have not believed what you have seen. And then Jesus says, but, I'll say it again plainly, so in verse number 30, I and my Father are one. Well, that's pretty plain, isn't it? How are you going to twist that around? Well, we feel like we've been here before because now they pick up stones to stone him. And that's already played out three or four times in the Gospel of John. Jesus makes a claim of deity. They accuse him of blasphemy and want to kill him. They've already made up their minds. They have the stones in their hand and we're going to kill the Christ. And it's interesting to me, they accuse him of blasphemy When actually they are the ones guilty of blasphemy. Any man that denies that Jesus Christ is the Son of God is a blasphemer is what he is. So it's the final public appearance of Christ. That's what it is. Now, I can't preach the whole section, all right? But these are the verses that I was excited to, to get to and it's verse 28 and verse 29. Here's what he says. He says, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. We call that the doctrine of eternal security. Some say that it is a Baptist doctrine. I prefer to say it is a Bible doctrine. Once saved, always saved. That's what he's talking about. Right. Now, now, I, I want to. I, I just want. I'm not going to preach the passage verse by verse, but if you let me just to anchor into verse 28 and 29, preach for just a few minutes on never perish, yeah. never yeah. perish, and and we we have already seen that in the Gospel of John with that phrase everlasting life, everlasting life. Right. We've seen that phrase in the Gospel. And, and, and that gives, if life is everlasting, that gives us security because nobody can take it away and you cannot lose it. And Jesus states in no uncertain terms, you can't get around it. He gives you eternal life, life that will never end and it can never be taken away from you. You can't lose it by sinning. You can't lose it by being unfaithful. If you mess up and smoke a cigarette, you didn't lose it. 36 times in the New Testament you find the phrase eternal life or everlasting life. And the reason why the security of the believer is a precious promise is because there is no security outside of the promises of God. One of man's greatest needs is security. That's why you have car insurance and home insurance and life insurance and long-term disability insurance and whatever other kind of insurance. You know what you're trying to do? You are trying to buy some security. A man wants to know that he's secure in his job. A woman wants to know she's secure in a marriage. Children thrive in a place of security and peace. I want you to know you can lose your job tomorrow. Your husband can walk out on you. There is no security in whatever this world promises, but you can rest in the security that is in Jesus Christ. Now, somebody that doesn't believe this says, well, here's the objection to it. That gives you a license to sin. Are you saying that a man can walk down the aisle, shake hands with the preacher, sign a card, say a prayer, and go live like the devil and go to heaven when he dies? No. Because here's the reason why. That man is probably going to go straight to hell because he probably never got saved in the first place. That's not what eternal security teaches. There's a lot of people that give lip service to the Lord, but they've never been saved. Jesus said that in that day, many will say to me in that day. Many will say to me in that day. They are in the business of religion, but they never were born again. Now, here's what Jesus said to them. going to say to them. Now, watch this. He'll say to them, I never knew you. Not that I knew you and forgot you, but I never knew you. Never knew you. The doctrine of eternal security is not that you can make an empty profession of faith, live like the devil, and go to heaven when you die. That person probably never got saved in the first place. But I want you to know that the security of the believer rests upon the same thing that the salvation of the believer rests upon, and that is the grace of God. You are saved by grace, and you are kept by grace. If salvation is by grace then security is by grace. If salvation is by works, then security is by works. Suppose that you get to heaven. They stop you at the gate of heaven and they ask you why should they let you in. Now, I don't think that you're going to get stopped at the gate and I don't believe there's an interview to get you in. But for illustration purposes, just suppose. What are you going to say? i tell you that if you say anything other than the blood of Jesus Christ, anything other than the unmerited favor of God, the answer is wrong. Amen. Only by the grace of God. And you cannot teach that you can be saved by grace and keep your salvation by works. If saved by grace, kept by grace. If saved by works, kept by works. But you can't be saved by grace and kept by works. Somebody says, well, what if a believer renounces his salvation and goes back to being an unbeliever? There is a strange doctrine, by the way, that says that as long as you are a believer, you can't lose your salvation. But you can cease being a believer and forfeit your salvation. And in fact, we have this strange phenomenon now of people that were raised in an IFB church and they have de- Converted. Have you heard about that? They have deconverted, basically turning their salvation card back in. And somebody said, What about that? Well, here's what I say I still believe the words of Jesus. And God said that He'd never lose one of His children, one of His children, and you will not be the first one. Somebody said, Well, 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 the devil, maybe the devil could take you out of the hand of God. Well, that's a silly thought. Because if he could, he already would have. The reason he hadn't is because he can't. And by the way, that would mean that the devil is being good to you. To leave you in the hand of God, that would make him a good devil. So your security would be in him and not in the Lord. See how silly that is? Oh, we are saved. We are saved. Not saved by holding on to God. We are kept by him holding on to us. So I just say this morning before I quit that the bottom line is that salvation is entirely by the grace of God. You didn't work to get it and you won't work to keep it. Salvation is not dependent upon anything you do. It's dependent upon everything that God does. I'm not saved this morning because I felt like it. I wasn't saved this morning because I was sanctified and perfect. No, I'm saved this morning. I'll be saved tomorrow and throughout eternity because God said that I was. Now, now, something interesting. I read this. I read this. I, I, read, I read a preacher said that you should not preach eternal security to a lost audience because this is Christian truth right here, right? It's kind of like casting your pearls before the swine that the unsaved would not appreciate this doctrine if they are not saved. And if you tell them ahead of time once they've always saved Well, then everybody wants that deal. You mean I can get eternal salvation, I can just go live any way I want to, don't have have to worry about sin, and I can just go my way. So therefore, you don't tell them about this, doctor, before they get saved, because they might make a false profession of faith. Well, here's what I'd say to that. Jesus is talking to a bunch of lost people. These are are not Baptist folk he's talking to. These are unbelievers, because as soon as he gets done with it, they pick up stones and want to stone him. So to a bunch of unbelievers, Jesus is preaching the doctrine of eternal security. And here's what I would just say to you this morning. If you're not saved, that there are precious promises that if you ever did get saved, that belong to you, and that ought to make it attractive to come to Jesus Christ. Now, now I, I, I'm not preaching the passage. I'm not going verse by verse. I'm just interested in eternal security. Shall never perish. So could I, for just a minute, for just a minute, could I just give you four or five reasons why I believe in eternal security? Because here's the thing, here's the thing. I know that you know it theologically. I know you know it in your head. But there's some of you this morning, the devil gets on your shoulder. The way you lived and what you did last week and how you lost your temper, what you said. no way you're still saved. And I just just want to come in this morning and just tell you the devil's a liar. I don't know if you saved or not, but if you ever were, you still are. Yeah. Look, let, me, let me just give right? you a few reasons. A few reasons, few reasons. Here we go. Number one, because of Jesus' presence in me. Yeah. Write this down. John 14 and verse 25. You. you can turn there if you want to. John 14, 20. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, ye in me, and I in you. Oh, the same way that Jesus is in the Father, I'm in Jesus and Jesus is in me. He says, ye in me and I in you. Now, don't let me lose you. You may not see Jesus up here on the platform, but he's up here. He's up here. I'm not physically inside Jesus, and Jesus is not physically inside me, but the Holy Spirit indwells me, and I am in him positional. It means that the Father, watch this, that the Father sees me as he sees the Son. Can I say it like this? His experience is accounted for my experience. I didn't die, but in him, it's as if I did die. I wasn't didn't come out of the grave, but in him, it's as if I did come out of the grave. I'm not seated in heaven right now, but in him, it's as if I am seated in heaven right now. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us even when we were dead in sin hath quickened us together with Christ by grace you say watch this watch this and hath raised us up together It made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus you say that's going to be wonderful when I get to heaven oh no it's not talking about when you get to heaven talking about right now Right now, right now, right now. I am seated in heaven already waiting on my body to be. <laughs> Could I illustrate it this morning? Let me find me a psalm book right here. I probably give this illustration before, but you just act like you ain't really never heard it. I, I take this piece of paper here and, and I, I just fold it and I put it in the songbook. book. The paper is in the songbook. The paper the paper has to go everywhere that the songbook goes. If the songbook falls, the paper falls, right? Suppose you want to get the paper out of my hand. The only way that you can snatch the paper out of my hand now—now now this is where you post shout. The only <laughs> play way that you can get the paper out of my hand is you got to get the songbook out of my hand. The paper, the paper is as secure as the psalm book. Listen, I am in Jesus, and in order for me to fall, Jesus would have to fall. That's why I'm not depending on how I felt yesterday. I'm depending on Him. Amen. I think the best illustration of it is, is the ark. Noah's ark is a picture of Christ. Genesis seven. Here's what God said. He said, "Come into the ark." He didn't say, "Go into the ark." If I tell you to go into the ark, that means I'm standing on the outside. I'm telling you, to go over there. But if I say come into the ark, that means I'm already, you come in where I'm at. Huh? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. He said, he said, come in to the ark. They got into the ark and shut the door. The reason why they shut the door was to keep them in and keep the water out. And the storms blew and the storms came. You know how safe Noah was? He was as safe as the ark. If the ark goes down, he's going down. Listen, he may fall down inside the ark, but there's no chance that he falls outside of the ark. That's what it means to be in him. Jesus' presence in me. I'll give you a second reason. Give you a second reason. I'm going to lunch. Not only Jesus' presence in me, but Jesus' promise to me. I'm in John 5. John 5, look at verse 24. He that heareth my word. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life. Do you hear that? I have everlasting life. I'm not bragging on me. I'm just agreeing with Jesus. Do you know how long everlasting is? Now this is deep. This is, deep. now now you, you you Greek students, you'll catch this. In the Greek, here's how long everlasting is. It lasts forever. That, that's what that means. If, 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 if it never quits lasting, then it wasn't everlasting. If if you lose it, whatever it was, whatever you had, that wasn't everlasting. Amen. Amen. I remember. I remember when I was a kid. I was just a boy. I remember reading my. I remember when I was reading my Bible and I came across a verse, and it hit me like a thunderbolt. And it's Titus one two, in hope of eternal life, which God. That cannot lie. Yeah. Promise before the world yeah. began. I remember as a boy when I first read that verse, I thought it was the greatest verse in all of the Bible. And listen, you listen to some theologians and some re, that, that that twist and turn the scripture, and they find a verse or two that seems to teach something else. But all, if all I had was Titus 1 and verse 2 in hope yeah. of eternal life, which God that yeah. cannot lie. Promised before the world began. If that's the only verse that I had, that would be enough for me to shout all the way the glory that I'm saved forever. God promised it. If salvation is anything other than eternal, then God cannot be trusted. I don't don't believe the doctrine because it's in the Westminster Confession of Faith or because it's in the London Confession of Faith or because it's in some, some creed. We don't study confessions. We study the Bible. You may deny eternal security, but you cannot deny that God promised eternal security. You may not believe the promise. You may not believe that God can keep the promise, but you got to at least admit that he did make the promise. The Book of Hebrews. He's called the author and the finisher of our salvation. The author—that means he started it, and he's going to end it. He will complete it, and it depends upon you. You lose it, but it doesn't depend on you. It depends on him. <laughs> we get ready to have Christmas. Some of us are, and we get ready to have Christmas, and we got grandkids, and so we spend all our money on the grandkids. And, and, and some of y'all, y'all grandparents, you you get you get Christmas gifts for your grandkids. And, and suppose that you've got, you got a little kid, grandkid, and, and you buy them a little toy, a little trinket. And they open up that present, and there's the toy, and it's got 47 parts. It's all going to be lost by the end of the day. And you give it to them because it only costs $29.99 or whatever. Here it is. You've got it. And, and, and in two or three days, it's going to be broken, lost and, you know, left out in the rain and what have you. But, but it's yours. It's theirs. It's theirs, and they get to keep it. But, but some grandparent is going to be a little bit more, uh, whatever you want to say, but some grandparent is going to say, all right, I'm not going to get my grandchild a toy. I'm going to get my grandchild a savings bond, a CD, a certificate, $100, $500. Uh, that, that, that's going to grow in value, and they won't appreciate it now, but when they turn 18, it'll be worth a whole lot more to them than what it is right now. Now, you're going to give it to them, but you ain't going to let them keep it, right? It's theirs. It's theirs. It's theirs. But, but not, no, you can't take this and take it to your room and put it in because you would lose it. Yeah. It's too valuable. Are, are you all tracking what I'm laying down? Huh? It's yours. It belongs to you. You don't appreciate the value of it. You will one day. I'm, 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 but, but I'm going to have your daddy take care of it. He's going to put it in the drawer. He's going to put it in a safe deposit box. We're to, we're, but, but that's too valuable for you to keep because you, I'm getting blessed by my own preaching. You, well, It's yours. It's yours, but we're not going to leave it up to you to keep it. I'm telling you that he gave me a salvation that's just too valuable for me to keep. So he said, it's yours, it's yours, it's yours, but I'm going to keep it for you. Yeah. Jesus promised to me. Can I give you another one? I'm not out of time yet. Jesus' purpose for me. Look at Romans chapter 8. Look at Romans chapter 8. I'll get this to you quick. Romans chapter 8, you, you know you know verse 28, don't you? Romans 8, 28. We know all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, then he also called whom he called, then he also justified whom he justified, then he also glorified. Book of Romans, greatest treatise on the subject of salvation ever written. And by the time you get to Romans chapter 8, he's answered every question. He's talked about condemnation. He's talked about faith. He's talked about justification. He's talked about the imputed righteousness of God. And there's only one question left. How long does it last? So in Romans chapter 8, he's going to answer that. He says, there is now no condemnation, verse 1. Well, that's wonderful that there ain't now, but will there ever be condemnation? There is now, therefore no condemnation. And he writes chapter 8 to tell you, there never will be any condemnation for you in Christ. And Paul's going to build his case on five affirmations and five questions in this chapter. I'll give you just the affirmations. Look at it. Verse 29. He says, for whom he did... For no. For no. Now, don't be afraid of that word. It's not a Calvinist word, that's a Bible word. For no means to know a fact before it comes true. It's to know something's going to happen before it actually happens. I have knowledge of events yesterday. God has knowledge of events tomorrow. I can look back and see what happened. God can look ahead and see what's going to happen. We live in history, we see events as they, as they come. But God dwells in eternity. He sees the beginning and the end of the parade of life all at the same time. So for whom he did foreknow. I'll tell you what that means. That means that before God swung the planets into space, he looked down one day and saw that I'd repent of my sins and trust his son as my savior. He saw that. He didn't wait to see what I would do. Knowing what I would do, he already foreknew me. He knew me before my parents knew me. Now, don't get nervous about it. He did foreknow. Now, watch this. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Now, Now, watch this. Foreknow is to know something before it happens. To predestinate is to determine for it to happen before it happens. He not only knows what's going to happen, he determines what is going to happen. God only, he not only knows the future before it gets here, but he decides the future before it gets here. Are, are we okay? Are we okay? <laughs> now theologians fall all over themselves. They're trying to explain predestination away and, and trying, trying to get around it, but to explain away predestination is to explain away God. It is simply that God determines to do something before he does it. And by the way, when God predetermines something's going to happen, all of hell cannot stop it. And all that it means is God looked down to the corridor time to September the 27th, 1976, when the gospel was preached to a seven-year-old toe headed boy, and he saw, he knew, he knew that I would trust his son and determine, based upon my faith in Christ, that he would save me, that he would put his spirit in of me that he forgive me all he predestinated that now watch this watch this watch this look at verse number thirty moreover whom he did predestinate them he also called. he called, he called me that night. that's the issue a summons to the preach word of God do you know what's happening today God's calling you here this morning you've never been saved you're here I'm here we got a Bible we're preaching God's calling somebody calling. but watch this them he also moreover whom he did predestinate them he also called and whom he called them he also justified justified that's God's judicial act of of declaring you righteous not not a human court in in the world that can do that they can acquit you they can pardon you they can't justify you verse 30 moreover whom he did predestinate them he also called Whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Problem is I know you. And you know me. And you don't look real glorified. You look like you still got some work to be done on you. And I got a whole lot of work left to be done on me too. So here's what we would expect the scripture to say. Then he also will glorify. Huh? That ain't what he said. It'd be a wonderful wondrous truth. And we will be glorified in experience one day. But that's not what he said. He said, them he also glorified. Past tense. Already done. In the mind of God, when he determines to do something, he goes ahead and writes it down in the past tense. (laughs) He will complete his purpose in me and all of hell cannot stop me. I'm telling you, no matter what the devil throws against you, no matter how terrible life may be, just tell him that he's a devil and he's a liar because God says, look at him, there he is. Already glorified, already sitting in heavenly places. Now, 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 if you're going to go to bed and worry all night about your salvation, you're going to have to walk all over Romans chapter 8 to get there. And I'm trying to help somebody this morning that says, I know when I got saved, but but, but I'm not living right, and, 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 I, and I'm doubting it that the devil is on my shoulder I'm telling you, if you ever were saved, you still are. Thank God for that. I'm I'm done. I'm done. I tell tell you why I believe in eternal security, because Jesus pardoned of me. And I'm going to skip that. But go to John chapter 10. Here's the last one. Jesus' protection around me. Come back to my text. I give unto the eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither should any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I'm not advocating backsliding. You know that we preach conversion, a changed life, fruits of repentance. You know we preach that. But you listen to me this morning. You may backslide, but you'll never perish. John Phillips, here's what he said. He said, as sheep can never be goats, as horses can never be cows, as cats can never be dogs, so the children of God can never become the children of Satan. You may lose your joy, you may lose your fellowship, you may lose your intimacy, you may lose your reward, you may lose your usefulness, but you'll never lose your salvation. You may one day become a prodigal, which will always be a sign. God doesn't save a man one week to do, to drop him the next week. Your happiness is in you holding to Christ. Your security is in Christ holding to you. Isn't that a wonderful doctrine? Never perish, never perish. Anna, come to the piano with you this morning. I want you to find that song. Now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me. We're going to sing that this morning. It's a doctrine that I wish every believer knew in his heart. And if you're not saved this morning, the good news is that Jesus loved you and died for you. And if you'll trust Him, this salvation can be yours forever. But I tell you something, either salvation is forever or your condemnation is forever. A man who dies without Christ will be lost as long as a man that is saved with Christ. You'll suffer the torments of hell for as long as I'll enjoy the pleasures of heaven. If you've got religion but you don't have Christ, today is the day. But I know that there are many who are saved and they don't have any assurance of their salvation. And Satan fills their minds with doubts and confusions. How could I ever be saved with what I did last week? things that I said, lost my temper, keep falling into the same sin. You ought to get it settled in your heart this morning that if you truly know God, if you truly know God, then quit entertaining the devilish thoughts that you could lose your salvation. There are some who have assurance, but it is false assurance. They claim any certain security is their ticket to carnality. Truth is, they've never been saved. You're going to get to the edge of eternity one day, and you're going to hear God say, I never knew you. Because here's the reality, is that when you get saved and you get truth like this in your heart, it doesn't drive you to the world. It drives you to Christ. Though there is no, though I have not preached practically this morning, I have not told you anything to do. We've just preached doctrine. But when I get that doctrine in my heart, it makes me to live, want to live more holy, not less holy. I want to be more pleasing to him, not less pleasing. Less of the world, more Christ. I understand that a believer can have carnality. I don't understand him wanting carnality. If you're saved, there is a change in your heart and your desire and your supreme desire. As I want to please God. So take a precious doctor, a wonderful truth. Let it be motivation in your heart to live for Jesus and not for myself. Heavenly Father, thank you for the precious word of God this morning. Thank you for a wonderful, wonderful truth that we know, we understand, and we believe, and that we rest in. I pray, Lord, this morning, if there's somebody in this room that's not saved, I pray the Holy Spirit would convict them of their sin and of the Savior They'd walk an aisle this morning and trust you. I pray, Lord, for that believer here that struggles with doubt, confusion, no assurance. I've been there. I, I know that, that fear. But I pray this morning that the Word of God speaks to their heart. And no matter what the devil says, no matter how their heart condemns them, to rest upon the precious Word of God. I just believe God. Speak to hearts this morning, would you? So stand to our feet all over the building. If you need to come, the altar's open to you.